Hey, Tom Moran here, uh, about to tackle a topic that I get asked about quite a bit, and one of the more controversial topics in the hobby, although I don't think it really should be, and that is quote-unquote power feeding. Now, to start off, I'm just going to start off by saying, quite frankly, I don't believe that power feeding really exists with tarantulas. It is a term taken from another hobby, snakes to be precise, that has been carried over to tarantulas. I wrote an article a while back on my blog about power feeding and used the term power feeding because that's what most people will be searching for. And unfortunately, it was misunderstood by some. I got a funny feeling people didn't bother to read the article, just saw the word power feeding in the title and went, oh, this guy's saying power feeding is a real thing. That wasn't it at all. But uh, so to just start off, I don't believe power feeding works with spiders. And I'm going to explain some of the things I've heard from different people and some of the ideas behind power feeding and why I don't believe that it is necessarily an issue in the hobby. Now, power feeding, the idea of power feeding is honestly when you jack up the temperatures and increase an animal's food intake to try to encourage growth. So basically, for example, it started with snakes. What would happen is, especially with the ball pythons where people were trying to breed, somebody would buy a brand new morph of a, of a ball python and they'd spend an exorbitant amount of money on it. And the idea would be they want to get this baby up to maturity fast enough, faster so that they can breed it and make their money back. So Hence, you would have power feeding. You'd keep the heat up, the temperatures up. You would feed the animal as much as it would eat. Snakes, they will eat, 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 and then they'll shed. And then they'll eat, 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 eat some more, and then they'll shed. So it was a way to grow the animal up more quickly. Now, one of the problems with snakes is it could cause serious health issues. And again, I'm not going to get into that part of the hobby, but I think it had it started to develop a negative connotation for many people when you say you're power feeding a snake, that you're kind of forcing food into it to make it grow faster and probably faster than it should grow. So now we go over to the tarantula hobby, and what happens is people, especially I found a lot of folks that are new to the hobby, but even some folks that have been in it for a little while, get a new sling, and they believe that if they feed it, and I've literally had dozens of people say, well, if I feed it more than a couple times a week, or sometimes even more than once a week, isn't that power feeding, it isn't that bad. And the word gets tossed around quite a bit, and I've had numerous emails about power feeding, and even more upsetting sometimes, I'll have people approach me and email me and ask me about my sling care and ask me what I do. And I'll say, all right, well, with the sling, you want to get it out of the sling stage as fast as possible. That's kind of a reoccurring theme in my videos when I talk about slings. The idea is to get them out of that sling stage as fast as possible. And so you want to feed it as much as they'll eat. And I'll have a lot of people that will kind of back off and or return with, oh, dear, but isn't that power feeding? Isn't that bad? I heard that was really bad for them. Now, I don't know where this misinformation comes from. I don't know. I, I linger around arachnoboards. I've been on arachnoboards for years. I've been in other places. Most people there are bright enough to know that, that that isn't an issue. Power feeding really isn't a thing with tarantulas. But this rumor that they can be harmed by the by power feeding persists, and a lot of people find this information. I'm guessing there has to be some article out there somewhere online that they're finding that's saying, oh, nope, don't feed them too much. But let's look at tarantulas and, and how they live in the wild. They are opportunistic hunters. And these animals are built to sit, wait, try to find some food. Some of them will wander out a little bit from their burrow, but the idea is to conserve energy and to take in food and to grow. And to give, for slings especially, at the sling stage, they're prey for other animals. They're When they go outside, they're exposed. So they want to grow out of that stage as fast as possible. They're also very open to the elements changing. You know, the heat can dehydrate them very quickly. Obviously, cold's going to do some damage. 
So they want to grow out of that stage as fast as possible. So basically tarantulas are built to eat when the food is available. They eat to a point where they start to store some of it up, they get nice and fat, and then they stop eating for a while. And that's when they go into the pre-molt process. For some, if food is scarce, it may take them quite a while to reach that point where they are ready to molt. For others, they may be in an area where food is very plentiful for a little while, so it's going to behoove them to eat as much as they can as quickly as possible, put on that weight, and trigger that next molt process. That is how tarantulas survive. That is how they grow. That is a very natural thing for them. So what happens is we get them in the hobby, and one of the cool things about tarantulas, and we should throw this out there, is that they don't need to eat as much as many other pets. Um, I was just speaking to a keeper the other day that feeds his larger tarantulas once a month, and they're perfectly fine. Again, it depends on the size of the meal, and we'll talk about meal sizes a little later on, but that is perfectly fine for an adult tarantula. I talked to one guy that says, you know, sometimes every two months or so. I have to be honest, when I first got my G. Porteri years ago, I was feeding on our schedule. Like, I'd go get crickets at the pet store once a month. Sometimes I'd skip a couple months after that, so it'd be like every six weeks or so, and I still have her over 20 years later. It's been going on 22, 23 years now. So all it means is that they are going to grow a, a little more slowly, but it doesn't mean you're going to harm them. So I think a lot of people hear that and they hear examples of folks overfeeding, we'll use the word overfeeding, species like G. porteri. So to go back to the G. porteri, now say I had decided to feed that one every couple days. So I've heard pet stores tell people that, you know, oh, yeah, take them and feed them, drop in like six crickets for them. That spider will eat until it's full, which will come probably very, very quickly, and then it's going to fast, and that's when you get the fasting, and we'll come back to that in a bit as well. So I think there's confusion as people here. They don't need to eat all that much. They, I, A lot of new folks will get into the hobby, and they'll buy uh, an avicularia species. For example, I just had somebody approach me with this. I, I bought an avicularia, a pink-toe tarantula. They didn't know the name of avicularia. Pink-toe tarantula from Petco, and I was told to feed it three crickets every two days or so, and now it's all scrunched up in the corner. It hasn't eaten in a week, and there's crickets everywhere. And I think what happens is they they're, they get admonished online. They'll bring this up and go, hey, I'm feeding this, all this, you know, these crickets. I don't understand it's not eating. And people will be like, hey, drop in one cricket once a week is fine. And they get confused. And I think that's where some of this confusion comes from with the power feeding is they get mixed messages. They hear, well, adults don't need to be fed three or four times a week. So it must be the same way with slings. And unfortunately, it is not. So going back to the idea of power feeding tarantulas, one thing I hear people do is they start feeding, they, they decide they want to grow their sling out of the sling stage, but they're keeping it at room temperature. And I had a situation where somebody was keeping, it was, I believe, an albopilosum. And at the low end of the room temperature range, we're talking like mid to high 60s, and he was dropping in a bunch of crickets for it, and it was taking forever to grow. Well, unfortunately, one of the things that goes along with power feeding is raising the temperature. So if you're trying to grow your tarantula out of the sling stage, but your temperatures are not high enough that it's going to stimulate the tarantula's metabolism to naturally process food more and, and pull in that energy and use it, then you're not going to get extra growth rate, that, that faster growth rate. I have a lot of folks comment, and I've commented before on my videos, When I, whenever I do a husbandry video, I always try to bring up the fact 
that my tarantulas don't get kept at 80 degrees very often. And I say this because 80 degrees seems to be this magic number that people will keep their tarantulas at. A lot of dealers I've talked to have kept their tarantula room around 80 because it keeps you know the growth rate up. It seems to be a good number if you're trying to stimulate some decent growth. And mine don't usually get to the 80s. In the wintertime, like right now, my tarantula room, even with the heater running, it's about 75 degrees. Depending on the shelf, it can be down to 73 um, higher shelves, 77 or so. In the summertime, the highest it gets in that room is usually around 78 with a few days out of the summer where it hits 80 degrees. So I don't have those really high temperatures. My tarantulas still eat really well. I get decent growth rates, but somebody keeping them at 80 degrees is going to be getting much better growth rates. So please keep in mind that if you've just picked up your spiders and you're trying to get them to grow, heat is an important part of it. I'm not telling people, and this needs to be abundantly clear, I'm not telling people to go out and heat your tarantulas. I'm just telling you, be aware of the room temperature. If you're keeping your tarantulas on the cooler side, if they're 67, 68 degrees or so, then maybe a schedule twice a week for your slings is going to be good enough. You're not going to get super growth out of them because probably at those temperatures with most species, the metabolisms won't be stimulated enough to promote that quick growth. So let's go back to the whole idea of power feeding. I really don't think it works and applies to tarantulas. I want to make that very clear again this time around so people don't misunderstand and bash the article or bash the podcast because they think I'm saying that power feeding is a thing. I don't think it's a thing. When I have people ask me about power feeding, I try to explain to them that this is a term brought from another hobby that I don't believe completely applies to our hobby. The fact is many keepers over the course of the years have found that feeding their tarantulas as much as they eat will have no negative impact on their health and longevity. And what happened is, is people were coming up with some ideas about what what this might do, what negative impact this might have on tarantulas. And we've talked about many times before how they are not the most expressive creatures on the planet. So when something goes wrong, if we lose one in a molt, if um, it mysteriously dies, we're kind of left searching for good answers as to why it happened. Nobody wants to lose a tarantula, and one that's seemingly healthy that dies all of a sudden freaks us out. And then we start scrambling. What happened? And we start finding false positives, or we start identifying things like, oh, wait, wait a minute. I started feeding it three times a week, and it had a bad molt. That must have screwed up the molt process. No, it doesn't work that way. It kind of reminds me of the whole feeding vertebrates to tarantulas where they started talking about the high calcium could cause molt issues. And this was because a lot of people were keeping theraphosis species like Sturmi or Blondi and feeding them the larger – they were looking for larger prey, so feeding mice and such. And when these animals would die and have trouble with molting, they would started to think, oh, well, maybe it's something to do with the – calcium interfering with the creation of that new skin underneath that new exoskeleton well as time went on we started realizing that we just weren't keeping them correctly they need a lot of moisture there was some issues there we were trying to find an answer and in trying to find an answer kind of incorrectly assigned something to it that it might be and that's just part of the process part of the hobby is experimentation observation and again this is why i think it's so important that people be able to you know talk about things that they've seen that are abnormal because we need to be able to share this information with people to get other opinions. So other people that were keeping these guys correctly and feeding them mice were like, no, mine are doing completely fine. I don't understand about this. I don't think this is part of it. And then as more people kept them, we started realizing where our husbandry mistakes were. And suddenly we found out that that notion that eating vertebrates was going to kill them was kind of ridiculous, especially when you consider that they're eating vertebrates in the wild. So let's just get some of these fake, not you know, these mythological 
problems with feeding your tarantula more than once a week out of the way. There's some things that have been attributed to this, health issues. Um, one is it can cause molting issues, and I think we just discussed that. I don't believe it causes molting issues. In the wild, if a tarantula is in an area where it can get a lot of food and fill up and trigger that molting process faster and, and get that growth, it's going to do it. They're built for it. I mean, you figure, look at people, for example. We are not built to do that. We are built, we have a certain size stomach. We are built to eat a certain amount of food to power us that day. We process the food. We eat more food. We really can't just sit there and fill up completely and then suddenly, if you know, if we're children, grow two inches. It doesn't work that way. Tarantulas are built that way. They, they build up their stores, and when they get to a certain point, it triggers that molt process, and they go into pre-molt. So I don't believe that is a real issue, and I get that quite a bit. They're going to have molt issues. Um, stretched abdominal skin can rupture more easy. That's a legitimate concern, and that's something to think about. But, again, if you're keeping the tarantula correctly, if you have a terrestrial tarantula that can't climb several inches and fall and hurt itself, it should be fine. I have seen, like, uh, my Pampabedius and my Theraphosa species get very, very fat. These are large spiders to begin with, and you can see how that skin is really stretched tight. And I remember my Pampabedius at one point, like, several hours, I think it was almost a day before it started molting, it's abdomen skin started actually splitting so that's something to think about and i have heard people have issues with the larger fatter spiders falling and hurting themselves but again if they're kept correctly that shouldn't be an issue you just got to make sure your tarantula is kept correctly so if you have a terrestrial make sure it can't harm itself from fall damage and that shouldn't be an issue um, one that comes out, and I've heard this one actually recently, and I was surprised because I thought this one went away for a while, is that some believe it can cause fertility issues in males and females. This has been disproven repeatedly. I just disproved it myself um, several months ago. I bred my Hapalopus species, Columbia female, and at the time she was about as fat as fat could be. She looked like a tick ready to pop, and I was actually almost reluctant to breed her. Because I thought that she might have been too close to a molt because she was really quite plump. Well, she made it. She still ate the male, which blew my mind because I thought she was well fed enough that she wouldn't do it. And she ended up having a sack with almost 400 slings in it. So what I got was not just a fertile female, but a fertile female that had those stores already, enough stores in that big booty of hers to produce a lot of slings. So this is something that I've, I've heard passed around, but a lot of people that breed these guys fatten them up nice and well. And, and again, sort of like the snake hobby, when something new comes into the hobby and you're buying it for 500 bucks, a lot of people buy these as an investment and the hopes are is to grow them up as fast as possible to adults and breed them. So that is a situation where you might want to do that. And obviously, if fattening them up like that caused them to have infertility issues, this wouldn't work anymore. People wouldn't do it. But it does. They, they do perfectly fine. So that's not one. And then another issue, and this is the one that gets brought up a lot, and I think one that people misunderstood in my last one because I did some charts and they were misused and misinterpreted, but it was to show how silly this really is, the idea that it can shorten the lifespan of a tarantula. Now, I'm not going to go into the breakdown like I did on my article because it's just it could turn into like a two-hour podcast. But let's think of it this way. Most female tarantulas, we'll start with females, live quite a long time. We're talking several years. A lot of them, eight years. Some of them, you know, if you're looking at Gramostola species, Brachypelma, um, Afonopelma, you're talking 30, 40. We're not even sure how long they can live. If you power feed, quote-unquote power feed, one of these animals, 
you're not over the course of a female's lifespan, you're not going to be able to diminish her life very much at all. You may take a couple months off here and there where you're feeding them really well. So, for example, if we have two brachypelma uh, hammer-eye slings, and one of them I'm feeding once a week, and one of them I'm feeding twice a week, a couple different things can happen here. Kept at the same temperatures, the one fed twice a week may go into pre-molt earlier and stay in pre-molt longer. The one that isn't fed as much might go into pre-molt later and molt earlier. That's one thing that people don't seem to recognize. And when you keep a lot of them, you start noticing this. I've seen it with my Formictopus before, some of my other species. If they're fed really well, they don't necessarily molt faster. They get a longer pre-molt period. So a lot of times, even though it looks like one stops eating and is going into pre-molt and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get a quick molt on this one, it can be months for it to molt. I have a lot of folks contact me panicking because they've got their new slings. They've been feeding them a lot, and the slings go into pre-molt, and it takes them forever to molt. And they're like, I thought it was going to be like in a month, and it's been like two months now. Well, that's one of the issues with spiders. They go into that pre-molt period. That pre-molt period can be very long. It's undetermined. You can't really tell anybody when their spider is going to molt when it goes into pre-molt. It's, it's something you can't predict. I have species that I think are going to molt really, really fast, and it takes forever. I have some that I think are going to take forever. They molt fast. So when you're looking at the lifespan, let's just take a 15, uh, let's just say this female is going to live 15 years old. That's kind of somewhere in the middle. If at the sling stage, you force it through that sling stage a little bit, and I do find that usually the sling stage is when they will grow a little bit faster. I've noticed with a lot of my species, not all of them, my brachypelmas still grow as slowly as molasses in January, no matter what I'm, I keep them at. But for a lot of my species, they will grow until they hit about three inches very quickly. They don't seem to have long pre-molds. You can fatten them up quick and, and grow them out of that sling stage quickly. So in the very least, you may be taking a few months off their overall life because you're shortening that sling period a little bit. But that is a small drop in the bucket compared to how long they can live. So when female spiders are in, involved if you are trying to feed your slings to a point to get them out of that sling stage more quickly and try to grow them out of that sling stage more quickly you are not going to have much of an impact on their overall lifespan it's just not going to work that way and as adults if you decide you're going to keep feeding an aggressive schedule and again i don't encourage people to do this because i do think adults you can't overfeed them but you're going to basically force them in the pre-molt early, you're going to have long pre-molt periods. So even if you fatten up, you take your grandma stola poker peas and you feed it a bunch of crickets over a two-week period, what you're going to get is a spider that's going to be in pre-molt for a long, long time. So again, you're not going to be taking anything off its lifespan there. You're just going to elongate the pre-molt periods, my opinion. Now, let's take a look at males. That's where it gets a little bit different. But again, please keep in mind that it's it's a nominal effect. If you're looking at a male, some males can mature in one to three years. I've had some things, uh, what was it, a um, C. darlingi that uh, matured, excuse me for the I was there, matured in about, I believe it was nine months, ten months. It was very, very quickly. And that wasn't even when I was power feeding. Now, if I had fed that one and been feeding it a lot more than I had been, I think I was feeding it like twice a week, that could have shortened the lifespan considerably. But we have to keep in mind, most males don't live all that long to begin with. So if you got a male that matures in three years, yeah, you could shorten that a little bit and it could be down to two years. If you had a male that matures, can mature in a year, that could, I heard people have the Hapalopus species, Columbia Larges. Somebody contacted me. I believe it went from less than a half inch sling to a mature male in about five or six months. It was kept at 80 degrees. That's that's fast. But again, males don't live that long to begin with. And the, a lot of theory is they mature early, earlier than their sisters. 
to keep them from spreading the genes to their sisters. That's one theory about because if you got a male that matures after you know six months and a sister, it takes four years. There's never going to be a pop- opportunity for them to mate, so there's no crossbreeding. That's one idea. I find it compelling. I don't know if that's the truth, but males you could shorten it a little bit, but again, it's it's not that big of a deal. And I think that's where people get hung up where could you shorten a male's lifespan a little bit? Yes, but really in the grand scheme of things, what are you hurting? So again, I think when you're dealing with slings particularly, I encourage folks to feed their slings twice a week or so, get them out of that sling period. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That is not power feeding. Again, as we've already established with spiders, power feeding really doesn't exist. And your goal at that point is to give the sling enough you know, good enough temperatures that it can grow and get it out of that sling stage as fast as possible. So if that's the situation, that's what you're doing, then there's absolutely no harm in feeding it multiple times. Right now, I used to feed my slings three times a week. I'm down to about two times a week only because I have a lot of slings. I think I have like 50-something slings now, so I bring them all out. That's like one feeding night. I bring all my slings out, and I feed them all the same time twice a week, and it's worked out great for me. I have some people that feed them three times, four, whatever you're doing. Just keep in mind that you can have a situation, especially if the temperatures are a little bit more chilly in your house, that if you're feeding it a lot, they will eat. They'll keep eating. They'll eat four times a week. They'll eat five times a week. But you may have that long pre-molt period, and that tends to freak people out a little bit. So to recap, I don't believe you can actually power feed tarantulas. I do believe that for most people it makes sense to feed your slings twice a week or so. Three times a week is fine. I think folks need to be cognizant of temperatures because if you're trying to feed your tarantulas a lot to grow them and the temperatures aren't going to support that, they're too low, they're in the mid-60s or so, you're not going to get that growth rate you're seeking. So that's something to keep in mind as far as shortening their lifespans. With females, it's a blip, and I don't think with females that live as long as they can, we could even judge if something dies from natural causes after 16 years who's to say how, how could you even prove that that had something to do with you power feeding it as a sling it's ridiculous males it could shorten the lifespan a little bit longer a little bit more but again those are males they don't live all that long to begin with as far as causing fertility issues we can cross that out as far as causing molting issues i haven't seen that although there are people out there and i haven't seen this myself so i'm not going to get into this one here but i've there are some keepers that believe that species like theraphosa species and um, pamphibedius are ones that can overeat to the point where it can impact their molts and they believe there's a contingency out there that believe that the overeating especially with adults we're talking about here can cause these issues i'm the jury's out as far as i'm concerned with that i don't think i overfeed mine i i don't see how that could be an issue but that is something people believe. So something to keep in mind, but I haven't seen it personally. And we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get some people to talk about that at some point in the future. But overall, you can't power feed your tarantulas. Feed them. I, I encourage folks, my schedule, if anybody's interested, and this isn't, again, the gold standard. This is just what I do. Slings get fed twice a week. Juveniles get fed once. And we're talking about most species when they hit about, you know, one and three quarters to two inches or so, I start easing back on it. And then adults usually get fed. The majority of mine get fed once a week. I have a couple that I've got on every other week or so, but I still pull them out and check them, fill the water, just whatever. But the once a week works great for me because it allows me to go in, do all the maintenance I need to do, clean out boluses, check for mold, check for any issues. So I like that schedule for myself. 
Now, we said we'd come back to that. Another thing to consider when feeding is prey size, and that's a whole nother ball game. But keep in mind that when we talk about feeding something, talk about feeding slings, for example, three times a week, I'm talking, when I say that, I'm talking smaller prey. So if I have a three-quarter inch sling and I drop in a pinhead red runner or a small cricket, that might be something I would feed it you know, two times a week. However, if I drop in something larger, medium, I've heard people feeding their slings, you know, as large prey as they can eat, in which case you're probably not going to want to feed it more than once a week. So if you're using larger prey items, that's something to consider as well. When I'm talking about my feeding schedules, I'm usually feeding crickets. So I, uh, crickets or roaches and a lot of my bigger prey, I'll give them multiple crickets at a sitting or multiple roaches at a sitting. However, sometimes I will break out the hissers for my larger species. When I break out a hisser, that is a big meal for a tarantula. Even some of my, my larger specimens, that's a really large meal for them. So in that case, I can back off and not feed them as often. So in the wintertime, when it's tougher for me to get crickets in here, I will break out some of the bigger ones. If I drop in two dubia for something, that's something I don't have to feed now for not necessarily next week. And I can even skip another week. I can usually go two or three weeks sometimes for that. So that's something to keep in mind as well is prey size. When talking about, you know, feeding your tarantulas, if you're giving them larger meals and this gets left out sometimes, then you don't need to feed them as often. If I'm giving them huge roaches to eat, then, and it's taking them, I, last time I fed, I believe it was my, uh, El Parahibana female, I have a big one that's about seven and a half, eight inches or so, and I dropped in a hisser overnight, and the next morning I came in and she was still eating, she had the hisser about halfway down and was still eating it. So if it takes them 24 hours to consume the meal, you can probably lay off feeding them for a couple weeks, that's totally fine. And again, I've talked to people that feed them once a month, so it's not a big deal. So I'm not going to get into, we'll approach the whole size of prey thing later on, but it is something to consider when you're feeding your animals, what size prey are you going to use? Because that does work into feeding schedule. Larger prey, you can feed them less often. So that always kind of gets left out. And I believe I kind of left it out in my original power feeding article, but keep in mind, if you're feeding larger prey, you can feed them less often. If you're feeding smaller prey, then you may want to feed them more often. So I think that about covers that topic, and we still have a little bit of time left here, so I'm going to squirt in another question or comment I've got. I was asked recently about feeding mice to tarantulas and my thoughts on it. Um, I've already covered the fact that I don't think necessarily it can cause health issues in tarantulas. I know that folks that keep the larger species, it can be difficult sometimes to find big enough prey items for them. I'm fortunate enough to have a hisser colony that I can use for some of my big guys, and I always have doobie on hand. But for some folks who are only keeping a handful of tarantulas and that rely on their local pet stores to get prey, it can be difficult to find the animals and find the feeder animals. So I was asked about feeding live to them lizards and whatnot, and I know uh, Mike, Mike's Basic Tarantulas, I think it has a fantastic uh, site. I think anybody that's gotten into the hobby has spent time on that site. And he always talks about in the end feeding them a small house lizard or something for variety. And again, is it? Let's let's just cover this right away. Is is it wrong? No, because a lot of these things in the wild will they're opportunistic hunters. They're going to eat whatever they can overpower. So it's going to be you know rodents, birds, lizards, snakes, whatever it may be, and amongst insects. However, some things to consider. Uh, 
dropping a live mouse in. I know there's people out there that love watching that kind of stuff. It's not my thing. It's uh, the one part about the hobby. I used to keep snakes. And the one part about the hobby I hated is I actually like rats and mice. And it was kind of difficult. I think when I first, Billy and I first moved out, we're, you know, 21 years old, 22 years old. And it was like, oh, I'm going to take a rat and drop it in. It's just how nature works. And after watching that a couple times, it, it was pointless to me. I started feeding frozen because it was like the, the, the animals, picture getting bit by a tarantula. I think most of us would kind of be like, ooh, ooh, that does not sound good. Now try to picture that poor mouse or something getting bit and taken down. Yes, in the wild, that's what's going to happen. But if you've watched these guys, these videos of these things getting taken down, it's it's not a quick death. And I think anytime you're feeding animals and using live animals, it's especially, you know, vertebrates, it's nice to make sure that they are dispatched humanely before they are fed out. So, Personally, I don't need to see that. I don't want to see it. I don't. I have people send me videos of that. Please don't send me videos of you know something taking down a mouse. It's just it's not my thing. It's totally fine if you have. And I, I it's probably some people listening right now going, uh oh. But I'm just throwing this out there because I, I I've seen it before. I've seen it with my snakes. I saw it back in the day with my porteri. I did it with a fuzzy once, and it's something I would never ever do again. It's just not my thing. But that aside. One of the issues you will find with feeding the vertebrate prey is the boluses that are left behind are just foul. Um, I used to feed frozen pinky mice to my porteri because I always had them on hand because I had snakes. And we fed pinky one day, and it was a hot summer day. And the next day I came home, it was like, dang, there's a smell in here. Where's this coming from? I sniffed it out. It was the bolus, the gooey mess that was left behind after she ate this pinky mouse. So something to keep in mind that... If you're going to feed them, that you've got to be really diligent with going in there with a spoon the next day and cleaning it out. And the mess that can be left behind can be really nasty. And the larger ones, you see the ones that are left behind from large mice, that is something that is going to attract a lot of unwanted pests, flies, maggots, things of that nature if it's not pulled out of there immediately. So if you do choose to feed vertebrates, you have to be extra diligent the next day. And, and again, feeding, we just talked about earlier, feeding the hissers. It can sometimes take them 24 hours to take a whole hisser down. Now imagine a whole mouse. That can take a little while. So you're going to have to, if it's a hot summer day and it's 80-something degrees in that room, that thing's going to start getting real nasty, maybe even before it finishes it. So something to keep in mind, if you do decide to feed it, those uh, vertebrate prey, you got to get in there with a spoon quick and some you know water, clean that area up fast. Another thing to keep in mind is, and I had this happen with a snake before, mice can bite. They, they're going to defend themselves. If something grabs them and doesn't get a good grab and doesn't subdue them quickly, they will turn around and they will bite. So that is something you want to keep in mind, that if you're going to feed vertebrates, I would encourage you, especially mice or rodents or something of that nature, then pre-killed, you can easily dangle pre-killed in there with the tongs and get the feeding response. I used to do it with my porteri. You can get that feeding response. They can grab it, and you don't have to worry about, A, the animal suffering needlessly as it is taken down by the tarantula, and B, you don't have to worry about it turning around and killing your prized animal because those anybody who's been bitten by a mouse or a rat knows what they can do. They hurt a lot. They can crunch right through that. So that's something to keep in mind as well. So I'm not going to tell people what to feed their animals. It is They're sold as feeders. Mice are sold as feeders. You can buy fuzzies, everything else. I do implore folks to keep in mind safety of of your animal. Well, let's make that paramount. If you're feeding it, you're, you know, you've got your prize T. stermy. You don't want your T. stermy or stermi, whichever way you want to pronounce it, getting bit and possibly killed and bleeding out from trying to subdue a mouse. You want to be make sure that it's a safe situation. So I would implore people, 
get over the excitement of watching them hunt and use pre-killed. I mean, that way you can always have frozen in your freezer. I wouldn't use them all too often, though, because of the mess they leave behind. So, again, be cognizant of the fact that the bolus that's left behind, it's not going to be the little crunchy, white, powdery thing, the crispy one that you get from insects and other feeder prey like that. It's going to probably be a gooey mess, and you're going to have to clean that out very quickly. So, so again, it's not wrong to feed vertebrates out. I just think for the majority of us, it can be unnecessary. If you find yourself in a spot and you want to feed your animal and they have fuzzies at your local pet store that you can buy, then by all means, I mean, it's, it's a food source that it's going to be good. Everybody, I always tell people that it's good to give them a variety of different prey items and not keep giving them the same thing. I mix it up all the time between roaches, mealworms, waxworms, uh, the crickets, whatever I can get. That's perfectly fine. Just be aware of the mess that's going to be left behind. Please do so safely and humanely for both of the animals involved so that it doesn't become a debacle. You don't end up with an injured spider. Or you don't end up with a mouse or other rodents suffering needlessly for several minutes for you know your enjoyment. Let's keep it respectful and let's just be responsible and make sure that nothing suffers and that we're not left with a mess that's going to end up bringing a bunch of unwanted pests later on. All right, so that'll about do it for this podcast. We hit right about the 30-minute mark, which is what I've been aiming for, although my last two, I blew that mark away. So again, thanks, everyone, for listening. I do really appreciate it. The numbers for the podcast have been going up consistently from week to week, which has been great, very encouraging. I really wasn't even sure I wanted to do one of these to begin with or that there'd be any interest, and apparently there is, so that's pretty awesome. Um, again, for those who want to comment on this one or you know, I'm still open for suggestions for future podcasts. I'm getting a lot of stuff from just people who contact me, which is great. You can find me on Facebook. You can check out my website, Tom's Big Spiders, which has been around for a long time, and I got a lot of husbandry information on that. And I'm still looking at a way to consolidate all of my social media things on that site so that people will know how to find everything that I'm doing, whether it be YouTube or podcast or whatever. And while mentioning YouTube, of course, I have the YouTube channel, so you can check me out there. I'm also on Instagram, but I have no idea. I think it's under Tom Moran. I believe that's what it is. We'll go with that. So anyway, thanks again for listening, and until next time, happy spidering. And that one was brought to you from Tanya Fear Not, who suggested I use that one. Thanks so much, guys. Bye.